We're in 1 John, and we have been moving through. We're getting towards the end. You know, the, the, the end is in sight, and, and it's kind of exciting. We're, we're wrapping up, and I just want to remind you of one or two quick things because uh, it's, it impacts this passage, and it's so very important for us to know. Um, and, and one of them, I want to start with just a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. from last week. The end of life is not to be happy, nor to achieve pleasure and avoid pain, but to do the will of God, come what may. Now, at that point, let me, let's read this passage. Uh, it's on your sheet there, and, and I'm going to read it. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony that God has given about his Son. This, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. All right, now last week, we, we went over something that I think is kind of important for us because we, we're talking about this, this idea of faith, this idea of believing, and what is entailed in that, and how uh, at the Reformation, the Reformers uh, took great care in how they defined it, and we used some Latin words, and I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to bring those up again because we talked about that last week, and I, I really believe this is important. The first thing, and they talked about believing, they talked about faith as like a three-step thing. The first is, is the Latin notitia, that is the idea of believing in the data, believing in, in information. It is an intellectual awareness that there is information out there that is important concerning whatever it is I'm talking about. There's information out there that is important, and I have to decide, do I trust it? Do I believe it? The second one is a census. That's intellectual assent. That is that step of saying, I think I believe this. I, I, I've, I've been persuaded of the truthfulness of the data that I am looking at, all right? And, and it, it is believing in something specifically. You can't just be sincere you know, people talk about that. Well, at least he's sincere. Well, you can sincerely believe things that are absolutely wrong. So sincerity is not the measure. All right, so we have this sense of we, we see that there's data. We're examining the data. We're finding the data to be something that is, that is, that is truthful, that is trustworthy. And then the final one is fiducia. And this is, this is that, uh, that phrase, it's, it's, uh, this, uh, that word that means personal trust. All right? It's a fiduciary commitment by which I put my life in the, in, in the hands of Jesus. It means to have trust. It means to have a sense of being committed and confident in that commitment. All right? I trust him and him alone. All right? And this is crucial because it includes the intellectual. It includes the mental process of working through the data. But it goes beyond those two and it gets to the heart. And this is that step that is so difficult for many people. It gets to the heart, and here's the key. It gets to the will. It changes my heart and my will, right? So that the whole person is caught up in this experience that we call faith. So this is it. And, the, and, and, and when the, uh, 
when the reformers came up with this, they were answering some very specific questions about what is involved in a person coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, because that was a pertinent question. And so in that uh, last week, we talked about this then. What does my salvation lead to? My identity in Christ, what does it lead to? It leads to serving others. It leads to obeying God. If you remember, we talked about this. Jesus said his commands are not burdensome. And I talked about that because sometimes to me, I feel like Jesus' commands are kind of difficult and living the Christian life is hard. But that's the point. He didn't say my commands are not difficult. He didn't say that. He said my commands are not burdensome. That is placing something on someone's back or shoulder that they are not able to bear. Giving them more than they can handle. Creating something that becomes something that they hate because of what it does to them rather than something that frees them. So he says, he says, my commands are not, they don't put that kind of a burden on you. I don't, I don't wrap you up in do's and don'ts and tell you, you follow these things or I'm not going to love you anymore. I don't do that, he says. So his commands can be difficult, but the word burdensome is not the word that describes them, and that's why Jesus says that. So the, the, my identity in Christ, my salvation leads to serving others, it leads to obeying God, and finally it leads to overcoming the world. And we talked in that, I'm not going to go over all that. So today... I want to talk about two things. It's on your sheet there, the witness of the word. And it's, that's in verses six through nine. All right, and we have that right here. This is the one, I know I'm reading again, but it's good to hear it again. This is the one who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is truth. All right, so he starts off by telling us this, and John is referring and we've got to understand this, he's an eyewitness. He's referring to what he saw. He's referring to what he heard. He's referring to these things that are in the four Gospels. And that's why, man, I feel like I just keep hammering these things over and over. That's why the historical accuracy of the four Gospels is incredibly important. Because John is saying, this is what I heard. This is what I saw. And we have ways of checking the historical accuracy of the four Gospels. Let me just give you a hint here, uh, pro tip. They're incredibly accurate. They ring true with the history. There's 13 things that, that, that uh, historians look at in writings to find if they could consider them historically accurate. Do they get the names right? Do they get the plants right? Do they get the crops and the rotation of crops and the time of year right? Do they get the geography right? Do they, and it just goes, the coinage, do they get the coinage right? Do they get the local customs right? Do they get, do they get the religious practices right? And there's 13 of them that they look at. And, and the four gospels are incredibly accurate. They get all those things right. In every way that we can check them, they get them right. And what's been cool, I'm taking longer on this. In the last 20 to 30 years, we found a whole bunch of new things about names and plants and coins and culture and practices and marriage practices and child-rearing practices that, the, that we find out was going on in the time of Christ and the four Gospels pass with flying colors. So we have four documents about Jesus' life. Now, that doesn't say that the miracles are absolutely true. That's part of our faith. But we have four Gospels that in every aspect that a historian would use to judge if a document is accurate and timely and written by an eyewitness, they pass with flying colors. If you want more information on that, just contact me. I will blow your 
you know, your inbox full of all that stuff. All right. Okay. So first thing he talks about here is the water and the blood. And the water is used symbolically a lot in the Bible. You know, we talk about the washing of the water of the word. Uh, but, but what we have to do is think, okay, what significant event in the life of Jesus involved water? That would be his baptism. All right. And so in Luke 3, we have a description of it. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Let me just throw in a side here. Do you realize that if you were a follower of Jesus Christ, God says the same thing about you. You are my daughter whom I love, whom I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. He says that about you. That's a pretty crazy thing, isn't it? That God would say that about you, that he would say that about me. All right, so the witness of the water would remind the readers of what happened to the baptism of Christ. The son was there, the spirit was there, the father was there to confirm Jesus' ministry and to confirm his authority. And this is a key event. This is a key event on many levels. One idea in how key this is is it shows us the humility of Christ to have John the Baptist baptize him, right? To have a creature, a human being, whom he created to voluntarily allow him to baptize him. I mean, you think about that. I often wonder if, you know, I know I'm getting into weird. I often wonder if Jesus struggled with that stuff, you know? Do you ever think maybe one time Mary was saying, Jesus, what you got to do here, blah, blah, blah. And Jesus wanted to say, I created you, you know, Just, just so you know. Which, if you think about it, when Jesus was left at the temple and they came back and got him, that's kind of what he said. He said, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? Come on, you know, get with the program. No, I don't know if he would say, not saying that, but... And so he humbled himself to allow John the Baptist to baptize him. You think about it. When my kids were growing up, I was the authority on everything, on everything. They could ask me any question, and I would be the authority. Even if I knew the answer or not, I would say it authoritatively, and they would take it from me as being an authority. So when computers first came out, and I was just all into that kind of stuff, and I was loving it, and you know, it started getting to where it was, you could get one in your home, and our kids would come to me and ask me questions. How the computer? How do you do this? And I could answer that, right? And then slowly things started to change. And I remember one time with my phone going, what the heck is wrong with this? Addie, would you help me with this? She came over and I said, look, this is what I'm trying to do. Okay. There you go. Because suddenly there's this, right, there's this change. So now I'm humbling myself to ask my child for help. You know, that happens. There comes a time when that happens in every parent's life. And, and, and it's not fun, I'll tell you that right now. It's not, not an enjoyable time where suddenly you realize, I am no longer the expert. I am just a part of the scenery for this kid. So, the humility of Christ, he had to have John the Baptist do it. The obedience of Christ we see. Why? He had to, he had to obey God in it. But here's one we don't often recognize when we, when, we look at, when we look at the baptism of Jesus Christ. The authority of Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? The Jews would place great 
emphasis. They would put great weight on a person who could speak authoritatively about biblical things, about Scripture. The Hebrew word for that is shmiha, someone who spoke with shmiha, authority, right? Okay, so the Jews thought that was very important, and the word literally, shmiha, literally means dedication. And what it means is, is that if someone is recognized as being an expert on, on the biblical record and on laws and on interpretation, then multiple people with great authority would gather together and bestow upon them a dedication and give them in that dedication the authority to speak authoritatively. That happened very rarely. We, we, you know, the, 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 the Jewish people were great at keeping records. They haven't done it a ton of times. You know, there's maybe one or two people in a generation that are given that dedication, given that authority to speak with shmiha. All right, And so most rabbis, what would they do then if there was a rabbi? See, it's not exactly like a rabbi is like a pastor. It's a little different. Most rabbis would simply quote what Scripture says. Somebody would ask them a question. How am I supposed to do this? And they would say, Scripture says blah, 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 blah. Yeah, but what does that mean in my circumstance? Scripture says that's all. They're not going to interpret it. They're not going to apply it because they don't have the authority to do that. And so they would study and they would teach sometimes what an authoritative rabbi had said about that. They, so you say, what do I do about this? And scripture says this. Yeah, but how do I apply it? Well, Rabbi Hillel says, this is what you must do. You've become unclean, so you must wash in a mikvah and then you must be set apart from the people for three days and then you're clean. However, Rabbi Shammai and Hillel and Shammai were two rabbis who had been dedicated to speak with authority in the time of Jesus, Rabbi Shammai would say, just washing in the mikvah is enough. You don't have to be away for three days. Just washing in the mikvah is enough for you to be clean. A mikvah is a, a ceremonial bath, um, a cleansing thing, you know, kind of like a baptism, except they do it all the time. All right? and, so the, and so what would he do? He would say, this is what Scripture says. If you press for an interpretation, he'd say, well, that's what that person says, and that's what that person says. That's why, for Jews, they study so hard of what do the rabbis say, what do the authoritative rabbis say, not just what the Word says, but what do the authoritative rabbis say. Now, I'm getting somewhere on this. Hang with me. All right? So they don't give their own interpretation. They don't state their opinion. The only person who can state their opinion is someone with shmiha, with authority. All right? So let's look at something people said about Jesus when Jesus had finished. This is the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. He taught as someone with authority. He had shmiha. He's not just some rabbi. He's teaching with authority. Now, if you remember how he does this in the Sermon on the Mount, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll say, you have heard this, blah, 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 but I say to you this. Blah, blah. What is he doing? He's taking Scripture and he's telling what the deep meaning is. He's telling what the real meaning is. He's broadening, he's applying it. He's, he's, he's making it work in people's lives. And the whole, the, when, he, when he goes through the blessed or the poor, the blessed, what is he doing? He's taking Old Testament blessings and he's now, he's working with them. He's changing them even some, but he's applying them. He's making people see what the meaning of the Scripture is. And they've never seen that before. 
And so they're amazed that he teaches with, with authority. And then later he cleanses the temple, and then as he's teaching, they arrived again in Jerusalem, and Jesus walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. Now you think about this, the, temp, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. That's, that's a who's who of the Jewish religion in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Israel. So it's, it's all the big smokes right there, right? Okay, verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked, and who gave you the authority to do this? What are they saying to him? They're asking for his credentials. They're saying, Jesus, we know who gave Hillel the authority. We know the group of people who, 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 who consulted and talked and prayed and all this stuff and gave this blessing to Hillel. We know the people who gave it to Shammai. We know the people who gave it to Gamaliel, the gr three, three of the greatest rabbis in, in, in the history of Israel. We know who gave it to them. But you, you're a nobody. You're, you're somebody out of nowhere. You have a funny accent. And you, dress, you don't dress the way you should. You don't hang out with the people that you should. You do everything wrong. So you're talking like you're somebody. Who are you? We want to see. Where's your resume? Let's see it. And so, if you follow that passage in Mark 11, Jesus immediately starts talking about John the Baptist. He takes them back to John the Baptist. Why? Because he's saying to them, you want to know my credentials? Well, everybody who was there saw it. The Spirit came down upon me. The Father spoke about me. John baptized me. Those are my credentials. Have you got any better credentials? If Yahweh says, this is my beloved son, I love him and I'm well pleased in him. Can you think of a higher dedication? That's what Jesus is saying to them. He's saying, that baptism was my commissioning service. It was my dedication. And so when he says the water and the blood, the water is the baptism and that's what happened. That's why that's so important. And the blood obviously takes us forward to the cross, to the shed blood of Christ for our sins. And mentioning the blood connects it with the cross and everything that it represents, especially, especially to John's Jewish readers. But even his Gentile readers would be familiar with a lot of this. Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10 uh, connects a lot of Old Testament principles with Jesus and how it was fulfilled in Jesus. It goes, it's a long expedition, expedition, exposition of that. It's kind of an expedition also if you're reading it. And it, so, so I just want to take a bit of it so we understand the richness of the imagery that's going on here. Leviticus, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 16. I know most of you have that memorized, but I just want to remind you in case you don't. It's talking about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And he says you're going to bring a bull and two goats, two young goats, to be sacrificed. And this happens once a year, once a year. And it's all about cleansing. And it's all about cleansing. And we have, to, we have to remember this. We have to keep this in context. It's all about cleansing for the purpose of relationship with God and dealing with sins because they're a sinful people and we have a holy God. So, bo bo I can tell this is going to be a rough day. Bull and goat. And they sacrificed them both. They mixed the bloods. That's where I got boat from because it's a bull and goat blood. And the, and, and the, 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 uh, the high priest, 
he goes in with this blood into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is. If you've ever seen the, the, fir, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first one, and that part with the Ark, that's a pretty good representation of what most people think the Ark looked like. It had two cherubim with wings and a, and a lid and it was gold. And uh, that's pretty, pretty good, pretty good visual of that. So what happens? The high priest goes in with this blood into the Holy of Holies, right? And, he, and, and it's this picture that there's going to be cleansing. And so he goes in and he sprinkles on the top there, and then he comes out and he sprinkles again and it's, it's stages till he reaches the gate of the tabernacle. All right? And what has he done? This blood has been shed for the sins of the people, and now they're going to get a visual. They're going to get something. They're going to see what is called the scapegoat. In Hebrew, it's the azazel. And the scapegoat is that other goat. They had two goats, one bull. Killed a goat and a bull. The blood was sprinkled. Now we have this other goat. And they meet him at the gate. And it would have looked kind of like that. The high priest reaches down and he touches the head of the goat. And then he confesses the sins of the people of Israel for the year, the past year and places them symbolically on that goat. Now, we think of it symbolically, but I want you to understand, for the people of Israel, there was something visceral and real and physical in that. They had this sense, and if you see in the background of this, which is very true, to, there were people just lined up. And what would happen? The man on the right, who would just be some man, and, and after a while, they would hire a Gentile to do it. Uh, he would take that goat, the scapegoat, and it had the sins of the whole nation on its head. And he would walk out, out of, the, out of the city, into the wilderness. And he'd go far into the wilderness, and then he would let the goat go. And it gave this picture that your sins have been taken far away, never to be seen again. All right? So here's this goat with the sins of the whole nation. And as he would walk out. The people would say, my sins, Azazel, the goat who takes away. That's what it literally means. In my sins are being taken away. I'm right with God. And it was an incredible event. It was, a, it was an incredibly joyous event. Now they started thinking about this, and some of them started pondering. Okay, so we've taken this goat way out, and it's going to die out in the wilderness. But what, what if we get a homing goat on our hands? And he wanders back. Because you don't want to wake up in the morning and look in your backyard, and here's this nuclear goat eating your grass with the sins of the nation, a year's worth of sins of a whole nation in your backyard. I mean, you think about it. And they literally believe that. And so what they did then was they would start encouraging the man who would lead the goat out. They would say, hey, here's a few shekels. Take him to a real high place and boot, help him not come back. And then they started thinking, well, the problem is the man who's taking is a Jew, and he's just scared to death of this thing. So he has a tendency to get out of sight of everybody and go, and start running, because he doesn't want to be polluted by that goat. So they started hiring a Gentile. They just hire some Gentile who didn't really care. They say, go to a high cliff, give him a boot. And just, just come back and tell him, you know, tell us that. The deed is done, right? Like an assassin sort of a thing. 
Why? Because they believed the sins of the whole nation were on that goat. They believed it. And so when somebody would ask, why not just kill the goat in the city? Why not just kill the goat right away? Confess the sins and kill it. And the point is, no, because we want our sins to be taken someplace. God is saying, your sins are being taken someplace far away, never to be found, never to be bumped into. Because, you know, that goat dies in the wilderness, and then there's animals and vultures and all this stuff, and after a while, that goat is gone. You're not going to accidentally be walking along and go, ah, sin, sin. You know, the whole sins of the right there. No. And so that was the idea. You can't kill it in the city. You can't kill it nearby. you got to get that goat out in the country, far away where no one. And so they would tell them, the guy who took them, you just wander. Don't, take, don't, don't pay attention. Just wander out as far as you can to just a place that looks like any other place. Kick him over the edge. Done. And our sins are taken care of. Never, and this is what's key, never to be found. Never to be brought up again. And think about that book of Hebrews. I have placed your sins in a place where they will never be remembered. God says that. On the basis of Jesus Christ, I have placed your sins where they will never be remembered. They'll never be brought up. So this is great for them. There's just one problem. The goat is gone. The relationship's restored. And what happens? They start sinning again. The cycle continues because they're sinners. Because we're sinners. The cycle continues. So every year they go through this. Every year they go through this. But throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's pointers. There, there's a, 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 a kind of allusions. There's some things that just point directly to the fact that there's going to be a scapegoat who's going to be the permanent scapegoat. There's going to be the one who takes away sins, who's going to take away sins permanently, all sins. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, he's telling us, Isaiah, other places, there is coming a scapegoat. There is coming a lamb who, who will be sacrificed and his blood will be placed on the altar. And there's coming a goat, this goat, who is going to take the sins off where they will never be remembered. As far, Hebrews says, as far as the east is from the west. In other words, infinity apart. You, it, your sins are gone. They're gone. And so that's what he's, our sins are laid on him. He's the sacrificial offering and he's the scapegoat all at once and he does it for all time, once and for all. So the mention of the blood, when he says the water and the blood here, whoops, I have gotten so off there. Never mind, I'm sorry, you guys. Uh, there it is. <laughs> I can't read. The, the one who came by the water and the blood, Jesus Christ. The mention of that, what is he doing? He's bringing all this imagery to their mind. He's bringing all this stuff to their mind that they know. He's saying, I want you to see this. I want you to remember this. And it's included in something else. When we, when we partake, partake of communion, that's a picture. He's talking about those types of things. And John here is addressing a very particular part of the heresy of the Gnostics. We've talked about this some, this book. There's a Gnostic, they're called the Gnostics, a heresy that's been going around that minimizes the, uh, the cross and minimizes Jesus Christ. And so he's addressing that and dealing with the meaning of the cross. 
and what, what they would believe, the Gnostics would see, believe that Jesus was simply a man. And at the baptism, the divine Christ came upon him in the form of a dove and then left him before his death so that he died just as another man because God is too holy to experience human pain and human death. And so they would believe that God would come upon Jesus and then he left Jesus and then Jesus died. All right? So they minimize the death of Christ they minimize the person and work of Christ. And he's dealing with this particular heresy and, and basically saying this robs us of all the value of what Jesus has done for us. The act of redemption in the death and resurrection of Christ has no meaning if you remove God from it. And that's why John says not by the water only, but also by the blood. And so we see in this passage the spirit and the water and the blood. They all together, they testify, they witness of the Messiah, the perfect man, the perfect son, the perfect savior who was and is God. Now, two things that we emphasize with, I mentioned, we emphasize, re-emphasize, we picture these things in the Lord's Supper, communion, and, we, and baptism. Those are two things that deal with those issues as a way of making it a picture. Just like that scapegoat was a picture of their sins being led off into the wilderness, never to be seen again, we have the same thing. We have pictures that God has given us to remember these things by. Now, this can be interesting, but here's the thing. We have to think about this. What is he teaching us here? He's teaching us the severity of sin. He's teaching us the greatness of God's grace and mercy that he has shown to us. So in verse 9, when he says, we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God who has given, which he has given about his son. He's, he's saying, look, you've got to understand something here. The Bible is God's testimony. It's God swearing to the truthfulness and the word tells us about how God works. It tells us about the water. It tells us about the blood. It emphasizes the severity of sin and the greatness of God's mercy and God's grace in our lives. It's God's testimony. And we see that. Here he is. You know, John's been talking about this the whole book. He's just talking about it in different ways. He's reemphasizing. He's repeating with a different emphasis. And, and that's something that happens all the time. So that's the witness of the word. Okay, next I want you to see the witness, the inner witness. That's verses 10 to 13. That says this, whoever believes, it's not, there it goes. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. When we have placed our faith in God, when we are accepting that his testimony is true, and, and here is that word here where he, said, he uses that word believe, just a reminder of what we talked about earlier, what's involved in believing, what's involved in faith. It's a rational faith. It's a rational belief. We look at the testimony. We evaluate it. We understand the implications accepting Christ as my Savior, then I commit myself to him because he is the Son of God. We don't have all the answers, and we never will. Okay, We have to learn that that is a part of being in this world. We don't have all the answers, but we have enough information to make a decision. And when we realize that to accept his testimony, I mean, this is part of accepting it, we accept it all, whether we like it or not, and whether we agree with it or not. 
There's certain parts of the Bible, I wish it didn't say what it said, but it does. And that, and that, that book, that Bible, that word has changed my life. And I've dedicated my life to him, so I have to accept it. That's the way it is for us. We have to accept what we like and what we don't like. It's just that way. Sometimes I would rather lie a little bit to make things easier. But God says, don't do it. I, I've got it. I've got it. I can't do that. All right? So accepting it all. Why? Because there's a huge difference in believing in God and believing God. I want you to understand that. It's so important for us to think through. There's a huge difference between believing in God and believing God. That makes all the difference in the world. Now, I need to say something here because there's a little thing here I want to uh, talk about. You know, when you're translating from one language to another in the New Testament, it's from the Greek into the English. What translators strive to do all of the time is they want to have accuracy to be as literal as possible, but also they need to have readability because sometimes, you know, different languages do things in different ways. I, I, I have a friend... Um, I have a friend that I knew in seminary from Brazil, and he would, he, would, he would moan to us about how poor and how inadequate the English language is. He would say, in Portuguese, he said, if I saw this, this, this beautiful woman, I would say, wow, that woman, she is beautiful, gorgeous, nice, sweet. He said, I can add as many adjectives, as many modifiers as I want. He says, in English, you guys stop it like two. That's the most you'll put on when you modify, when you, when you, when you describe something. He said, but in Portuguese, we are encouraged to, you know, to flourish and, and to add all these things because it's so important you know, to make it such a beautiful language. And so then he would confidently tell us, that is why when we get to heaven, we'll speak Portuguese, not English. <clears throat> um, I won't mind if he's right. That's okay. Yeah. So in translating from Greek into English, sometimes for readability, oftentimes the translators, they'll make changes. That's just a part of how they, 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 not terrible changes, but they make little changes here and there to make it read better, to try to keep the meaning. And there's one here that I, um, I, don't, uh, I don't totally agree with, all right? All right. In verse 10, at the very beginning, whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. And they admit, there's two more words after that. There's the word in himself, and it focuses on the fact that this is an inner testimony. This is an inner witness. It literally says, the one who believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. He says there's an inner witness. There's an outer witness. Remember we talked about the two-step authentication, that the Word of God is our objective outward authenticator of truth, and then the Holy Spirit is our subjective inward uh, authority for the truth. We, we, don't, we use them both. You can't take one without the other. We use them both. And here, this is what he's getting at, this inward part. John is pointing to the internal witness that's going on. He's talking about assurance. He's saying there's an inner witness in your life that you believe in the Son. And this is through the Holy Spirit working in your life. Now, a lot of times people get that and they start going, oh man, because then you, you, know, you examine yourself and you feel guilty and you think you're a bum and how terrible you are. But, but if you take the long term looking at yourself, have you changed because of Jesus? Have your priorities changed? It's not, are you a totally, you know, you're just so totally different. No, I'm not asking you to be perfect. Just saying, over time, have you changed? That's an inner witness that God is working in your life. Have your priorities changed over time? That's an inner witness 
of God working in your life. The Bible is that outward witness. It's his testimony that he offers to us. And it's a word, that word testimony, that word witness is a word that's used in trials. I mean, we use it for a witness in a trial. And, And John is saying it's like there was a trial and God gave testimony. That's what Job wanted. If you, if you read the book of Job, he said, I wish there was a trial and God could get sworn in at the dock. Well, there was a trial, and our, our, the Word of God, the Bible, is the testimony of that trial. So there was, you know, like I always try to picture things. I, I, I think that way a lot. So I think, okay, there's some bailiff that, well, he can't be putting his hand, God, you know, God, I want you, God can't put his hand on the Bible because that's what it's about. But he says, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you? You, I guess, is what he would say, right? Um, that struck me as funny, but now it strikes me as sacrilegious, so I'm sorry if I... Okay, so God gave his testimony, and it is the word of God. It's the Bible. That's his testimony. That's his witness. And so to not follow it, to not obey it, to not believe it, is to call God a liar. I mean, that makes sense, right? God gave his testimony. If you don't follow it, you don't think it's true, you're calling God a liar, And this is what he's saying here. He's saying, I just want you to see this. You know, if you you don't believe it, in verse 10, whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And, And many people who don't believe God would say, yeah, I think it's the whole thing's a lie. They would say that. I I understand where they're coming. I disagree, but I understand where they're coming from. The problem is, is when you have people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but I don't live it. Because now they're making God out to be a liar. And that carries more weight and is more dangerous amongst us. Because when we say there's a God and he has spoken and he's told us what's important in this world and then we go out and live as if there is no God, then we have said he's a liar. We're saying it by our actions. And that's something that's worth taking a moment and thinking about. Where are areas in my life where I'm saying God's a liar? Where are they? And that's a part, go all the way back to the beginning of 1 John. God is light. Walk in the light. Walking in the light is saying, God, is there an area where I'm calling you a liar? I want to change it. Show it to me. I want to walk in the light. In verse 11, he says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. That's God's testimony to the human race. Eternal life is available and is found in Jesus. Now, we've talked about this, but I just got to... Eternal life is not simply life that lasts forever. That's just a small part of it. God is eternal, and it points to the life that he has. So, in a way, eternal life is simply saying the life of God. It is a life that we can experience right here, right now, on this earth, not just a future life. But what does it mean? What does eternal life mean? Here's a few little thoughts. It is because it's the life of God, and in God there is peace. We can experience his peace even now. We can be liberated from our fears. And then we have to think, what what am I fearful of, and how has he liberated me from it? In this life, in God, there is power, so we can be victorious over our circumstances. In God, there is holiness, so that we can have victory over sin. It means that we're pure, we're clean in his eyes. God is love. We've talked about that quite a bit in this book. Therefore, we don't have to be bound up in bitterness and hatred. Now we can be truly loving to people. God is light. We don't have to wander in darkness anymore. We can see. We can see what is worth living for and what is not worth living for. We can see people for who they truly are. 
we can see ourselves for who we truly are. And we can have relationships that don't have deception in them. God is life. John tells us that in his, in his gospel, that God is life. Therefore, death is defeated, and the fear of death is defeated, and the life that we were made for is available to us now. Why did God create you? Why were you born? There's a reason. God has things for you to do. And to live like that's not true is to t- say that he's a liar. And it goes on and on and on. All these different things. God is this. God is this. All these characteristics of God that we find now. And this life is only found in Jesus. And there's no other way. When the Son abides in you and you in Him, you have that life, that eternal life. But look at verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I know what comes up is, comes up all the time. Christianity is so exclusive. It's only the Son. you got to have the Son to have life. That's, that's so exclusive. It excludes so much. And you know what? That's true. But let's remember, in all of life, there's a lot of things that are very exclusive. Truth is exclusive. <sighs> Math is exclusive. No matter how hard I try, two and two could not equal anything before. And I tried when I was little. I gave it a shot. Math is exclusive. There's lots of things that are exclusive. But here's the flip side. Christianity is incredibly inclusive. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone, anybody is welcome. Anybody can come. And so it's, this inclusiveness is equally offered to all people. But John is emphasizing the Son because he's answering those Gnostics. He's saying the Son is the key. They're saying the Son is not that important. And he's saying believing on Him is what's important. Now, every time I see things like that, I go, oh, man, my belief is so lame sometimes. But remember, we were looking at this last week, the man whose son needed healing. And, and Jesus, he said to Jesus, if you can just do anything. And Jesus said, if, if, what's up with if? Anything is possible to him who believes. And the guy immediately, it says, he immediately is like, I believe. I feel like he said, I believe. Help me with my own belief. I feel kind of bad that I'm doubting right now, God, but if you could help me with that, I'd really appreciate it. And Jesus took him. Jesus healed his son. He said, that little bit of belief is good enough for me. Even with your doubts, I'll work with you. So understand, when it comes to salvation, he works with a little bit of belief. It doesn't take much. Jesus uses that parable of the mustard seed. That's a tiny thing. Just a bit of faith. And then finally, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. I want you to know you can trust God on this one. His testimony is true. If you turn to him, he will in no wise cast you out. There will be no casting out. One time with one of my kids, they were having a, he was having a difficult time with obedience and issues like that. And uh, at one point, it seemed like when he was talking to me, it was almost like he was saying, you, you must hate me. And I said, oh, 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 oh. Dude, I love you. I love you more than my life itself. I will always love you no matter what you do, no matter how bad it is. Your behavior does not change my love for you. 
our relationship as a parent and as a child, this loving relationship will never change. I mean, you may do things that I'm disappointed or I wish you hadn't done or, I, or I'm upset because of what it will do to your life and how it will impact your life. I said, those are the normal parts of her, but I love you. And that never changes, ever. And that's what God is saying to you and to me. He's saying, dude, I love you. Or dudette, I love you. However, he, however God says it. And he's, and he's saying, I want you to rest in that. That is a foundation that gives you peace and rest so that my commands are not burdensome. You have a relationship that is constant. You have a life in him that is eternal, beginning with those first baby steps of, of faith and maturing to now and even further. God says, I will be there always for you. I, you have my te- I swear it. It is a promise based on who I am as God. And you can rest in that. You can trust it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the assurance that you give us, that you love us. Father, help us to rest in that. Help us to understand it and, and hold on to it in the midst of the trials and the storms and the tragedies of life to know that you are there and you love us dearly. And Father, as we do that, it empowers us knowing that we are loved, empowers us to serve others, to love others, to be a part of reaching this world for your son Jesus. We thank you for that great privilege. God, as we look this morning, we're going to uh, we're gonna have a meal together. Let me just pray for the food. Just pray that uh, you would bless this time of fellowship and that part of that love that we have from you and for you is shared here amongst your body as brothers and sisters. In Jesus' name, amen.